Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah. ...expressed and discussed on the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show are for informational and educational purposes only. It is not intended to provide and should not be relied upon for accounting, legal, tax, or investment advice. Please consult with a professional specializing in these areas regarding the applicability of this information to your situation. All things finance and business leading you to success at work, at home, and in life. It's the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. And now, here's your host, Dr. Doug Ramsey. Welcome to the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. I am your host, Dr. Doug Ramsey, broadcasting live from the Mojo Five O Studios. In the studio with me, producer and aspiring astronaut, Ron Phillips. Good, <laughs> Good morning, morning, Ron. How are you? Doing great. So, uh, I, uh, I'm sure you checked out the uh, Virgin Galactic little space launch last week. I did. Of course. If there's something in space happening, I'm going to watch it. So, Richard Branson setting uh setting a milestone for his company he did and uh it was it was pretty cool you know just being able to watch it i hate they had uh, audio trouble up there at the time but we did get to see the recording after the fact and it was actually pretty cool to watch yeah it was was really exciting and i guess there's a debate whether he, <laughs> he really reached uh space whether he, he can be considered an astronaut or not yeah neil degrasse tyson has come out and said you know, he didn't really go into space, uh, you know. But then again, by his uh, comments, uh, it infers that Alan Shepard did not go into space either because right. he did the same thing Alan Shepard did. It was just up and back down, falling back to Earth. Because well, because he didn't orbit is why Neil deGrasse Tyson says he did not do space travel. And what's interesting is I guess there's, by definition, this demarcation on the Kármán line. Yeah, I think it's... I think it's 80 kilometers or something like that. Yeah, which is higher than where uh, Richard Branson flew to. But coming up Tuesday, let's uh, let's hit this headline. Jeff Bezos, not to be outdone, uh, he is taking off. He's going to attempt to fly to space on Tuesday, July 20th. That's this Tuesday. Launching aboard a rocket and capsule developed by Blue Origin and Blue Origin if you're not familiar, is the Amazon Founders private space company. Yep. It will be the first crewed launch for the Blue Origin's new Shepard rocket. And uh, successful, Bezos will make, if successful, Bezos will make history for taking part in the first unpiloted suborbital flight with a civilian crew. Several other milestones may be set on the trip. Joining Bezos will be 
one passenger who stands to become the oldest person to reach space and another who would be the youngest. Yeah, so, I think I think she's 82. Exactly. We've got 82 and 18. Wally Funk, 82. You're exactly right. And Wally, uh, they say, is a former test pilot who is one of the Mercury 12 women who underwent training in the 1960s to demonstrate that women could meet NASA's standards for its astronaut corps. And Wally is uh, short for Mary Wallace Funk, not to get confused there. And then the 18-year-old, this is kind of interesting how the 18-year-old came into um, getting a ride on the rocket. The person that bid, I think it was about $28 million, and won the bidding to get a seat uh, to ride along with Jeff Bezos, right. that person said they ran into a scheduling conflict, and so they gave up their seat, even though they won the auction contest, and they are going to reschedule and go at a later date. I don't know if All they right, want Let me to- ask you a question. What jumps in the way <laughs> of a trip to space? What what kind uh, of scheduling conflict? A PTA meeting? <laughs> Maybe. What in the hell? <laughs> I think uh, this Especially winner, if there's $28 million. Yeah. Wow. I, I think that person just wants to make sure the first one is successful. And they'll go on the second second ride up into orbit. So really interesting there. And then we were talking a little bit before the show that that uh, that distinction, you know, how high everybody goes. You know, do they really get way, you know, you're talking about establishing these milestones to ultimately get to a base camp or colony on the moon. And in that base camp, with the futuristic thinking, uh, will provide or pave the way to get all the way out to well, Mars. Well, these two ultimately. guys are doing the same thing that NASA did back in the 60s with Alan Shepard and in, in going up. And they just want to make sure they can get there, you yeah. know, and uh, this this gives them a leg up on everybody else trying to do it. And it's the first two civilian rockets outside of the government that are going up. And that's fantastic to me, honestly. And I don't know if you saw the picture. Elon Musk was wishing Richard Branson well, and they were together. Elon standing there, no socks on, hanging out. I mean, uh, just, just great to see. And, they're all wishing each other well, and it's truly a uh, an interesting time in uh, in space uh, going on. Now, speaking of that, let's kind of change gears and talk a little bit about UFOs. <laughs> you have got a show that just launched recently with uh, Rocky Abnormal Realities. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so Abnormal Realities uh, was the brainchild of Rocky Stucci. He's a uh, uh, he's a host on this network and he and I've been friends for many years and, uh, we decided we wanted to do a paranormal UFO Bigfoot type show, uh, just to kind of, you know, take people away from politics periodically. Uh, and, uh, you know, with the way things are nowadays, we just needed a little bit of a release. So he and I do a show on uh, weeknights at 7 PM central, 8 PM Eastern called abnormal realities. We had, we've had some fantastic guests. Um, this last uh, couple of weeks, we've had, uh, Jeff Harmon, uh, uh, who is a, uh, an exorcist and, uh, and, and clearer, uh, uh, uh not, and, and not an exorcist, but he, he performs exorcisms. Right. Um, and, uh, we've had, uh, Travis Thorpe, who is a Wiccan priest 
We've had Brad Staggs, who's done some UFO investigations uh, back in the 90s, late 80s and early 90s, and uh, has worked on some ghost hunting shows. Uh, and then just me and Rocky talking about different things that we find in the news and stuff like that. And it's it's entertaining, let's just say. Uh, you know, we're not like the serious paranormal ghost hunting shows that you find right. on TV. We're, we just have fun with it. So, Yeah, that's great. Abnormal Realities. Yeah, you can find us uh, on our Facebook page. Abnormal Realities, our YouTube channel, same name. Do you suspect Brad was beamed up by uh, Martians at one point? In oh, this absolutely. Line? There's no question. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, it's Brad Staggs. So. <laughs> That's right. There we go. All right, awesome. So let's talk about uh, this next little headline. I saw this yesterday. Not sure if you were uh, in the area, but more than 60 people yesterday had to be decontaminated after chemical leak at Six Flags Hurricane Harbor splashdown, uh, that water park is in Spring, Texas, just north of Houston. And apparently, uh, some kind of chemical leaked. I, and it doesn't say what it is. I'm going to bet it was chlorine. And That's my guess. Yeah, yeah they, uh, they had to get those people out of there, shut the park down for a while. Not a great headline for Six Flags. Could cost them some money. You know, if you've got safety violations and, and regulatory violations and, you know, they may be covering some injuries, too. So running a business, it looks like a lot of fun, but you got to be careful. Take safety as uh, a number one priority always. And speaking of that, let me get to this headline if I can find it here. Uh, I had it up earlier. Uh, let's see. This is coming from CNBC. Uh, no. Looking for the um, airline that uh, actually put their plane in the drink last week. Where did that go? Ah, we'll come back to it if I can find it. But uh, apparently the FAA is cracking down on them. Maintenance uh, wasn't up to par, wasn't meeting regulatory standards. They so, had to land it in the water or ditch it? Yeah, they ditched it. It's a uh, cargo. With, it was a oh, it was cargo. Okay. 737 type, uh, type rated plane, uh, but for cargo services, and it actually went into the drink, and the uh, the pilots were saved by the Coast Guard, so uh, the pilot survived. But the problem they ran into is that they uh, they apparently were not maintaining their planes properly. We'll see what that investigation entails as that unfolds. All right, millionaires. Let's talk about some habits of, uh, of millionaires. And what's kind of funny, the, uh, I told uh, Ron this this morning, that uh, I printed out the list of 10 habits that rich millionaires have, and it turns out only every other habit printed out for some reason. So that list got whittled down, but we found plenty of other lists of, of uh, habits for millionaires. So we're going to go ahead and jump into those and uh, see what we've got here. So first one, millionaires are always learning. Overall, the majority of millionaires expressed a goal that never stopped learning, growing, and improving. Almost nine out of ten which is 88%. Well, that's not 88%. Nine out of 10 would be 90%. The uh, article here cites 88%, so I guess that's the more precise calculation. 
They shared that they read every day to increase their knowledge about their job and their industry. More than three quarters reported that they read a minimum of two books a month, and 63% reported that they enjoyed listening to audiobooks or podcasts while commuting to work, exercising, or doing housework. Yeah, reading and learning, always a good thing. In fact, what uh, shocked my wife and I yesterday, our five-year-old granddaughter was over, and mind you, she's five years old, and she comes out with a statement, Ron, that unicorns are fiction. Oh, I mean, did you go, oh, what? Yeah, no way. Exactly. And I'm like, fiction? I don't even think I learned how, uh, you know, what the word fiction meant until I was in high school. And she just pops that out out of nowhere. I'm like, pretty impressive. She may be on her way. That's uh, one of the 10 habits. So hopefully she'll be able to take care of us when we get older and uh, support us financially. All right, millionaires prioritize their health. That's another key one. They stay active uh, and they watch what they eat, all the standard things you would uh, uh, expect in managing your health. Go to the doctor, get those routine checkups and so forth. Next one, millionaires are frugal. A big part of building wealth is focusing on frugality and avoiding lifestyle creep. To that end... 64% of millionaires describe the homes they own as modest. Have you seen Warren Buffett's home, Ron? No, but I assume it's anything but modest. No, no, it actually is modest. You know, and they they did a big profile. He is maybe. Bill Gates is not. Yeah, true, (laughs) true. But Warren Buffett, uh, I think it was on 60 Minutes or one of the, you know, news shows. They do this documentary on him and they talk about how he... He goes and gets his egg McMuffin every morning. He's got exact change, and he drives this older model car, nothing fancy, and, you know, he's, he's not living a, a lavish lifestyle at all. According to this author that wrote this list, all the millionaires that he studied and interviewed own their homes, and 56% own their homes for at least 20 years, over half buy used cars. And this frugal mindset also extends their off time. Nearly all, 96%, said they spent less than $6,000 a year on vacations. And 41% spent less than $3,000 a year on vacations. And 84% shared that they'd never gamble. That kind of fit almost in that category. Uh, don't Don't like the odds there in Vegas. Of course, I don't know how to play craps. Have you played craps or uh, I, I blackjack? Used, I used to play it, and uh, and and I understand it. And there are ways to win, but it takes some education. You have to, you know, kind of learn the ins and outs of it. But craps is the best game for odds out there. Right, right. Yeah, uh, uh, totally opposite of roulette, of course. And gaming, it's a fascinating industry in itself. I actually wrote a a uh, paper in college on skimming in Las Vegas and studied it a little bit uh, and how the whole casino and hotel relationships work. And they, they want to get you there to get you on the games because um, the games are where they make up the losses, maybe in, in some other uh, loss leading areas. And, you know, the old days it was the free buffet, you know, now it's, 
Michelin, you know, five star chefs, and the, uh, the whole uh, industry has changed uh, quite dramatically. Now, speaking of these uh, frugal vacations, have you ever seen um, what is that show? It's the uh, God, it's slipping my mind. The cruise show that's on. Uh, God, what is it? it? It's they they sail around the Mediterranean. They follow the crew, and it's on one of these luxury yachts. And the price tag to charter one of these yachts for a week, you know, it's it's up in the six figure range. I mean, it's it's just mind boggling. But you know, you you get the yacht to your your group, your small group. They do all these catered meals for you and like a personal cruise line. Yep. It's amazing, but that is not frugal. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they're uh, not following this particular rule very closely, but that is definitely an expensive way to go on a vacation. All right. Next thing. Millionaires like to plan ahead. Study participants. uh, They all shared that uh, they dedicate about three quarters uh, of their uh, their week to uh, uh, planning and work an average of 58 hours. Uh, they wake up at least three hours before their work day even begins. And once the day starts, it's often organized. More than three quarters, 81% shared that they keep a to-do list. And I don't keep one of those. So maybe I should start keeping a to-do list, Ron. Maybe that's my problem. Uh, Millionaires embrace failure. Almost two-thirds, 63% of the millionaires in the study shared that they took calculated risks as they built their wealth. And 27% said they had failed at least once in business. See that a lot with millionaires. They go through, they go for it, roll the dice, uh, and then they, they get wiped out on an early, you know, business attempt, and then they come back, they learn from it, they rebuild, and uh, away they go. They don't let those failures deter them. More than three-quarters or 80% reported that they are actively working towards one major goal at any given time, and nearly all of them attributed their success to staying positive and having a clear vision of their future, especially when times are tough. All right, speaking of tough times, you always want to make sure you get your estate planning evaluated and your insurance reviewed periodically, just like those medical health checkups we talked about for the millionaires. Same thing with your estate. Make sure you get it checked up. Great guys. One my family uses, Tony Vaccaro. Reach out to him. Uh, He'd be happy to sit down with you give you a complimentary review and then his personal opinion on whether anything needs to change or how to turn the knobs and tune up your estate plan for even greater wealth accumulation and tax planning. You can reach Tony at www.independentapg.com, www.independentapg.com, or at 214-837-3512. All right, continuing on, more habits of the wealthy. Let's take a look at a few more. 
Millionaires. Let's see. We've exhausted this particular list, and that one's not pulling up. Well, we'll come back to that. Don't have any more right off the uh, the bat here. Um, let's see. Since that didn't connect up, let's go on to the next topic. Faux fish. Faux fish. Looks like the ride is growing for the faux fish wave of alternative meats. Ron, you're going to love this. We've we've talked about Beyond Meat before and the uh, fake hamburgers and so forth. Faux fish is ain't going to be the next big thing in alternative protein. Alternative meat has skyrocketed in popularity in recent years as consumers have started to change what they eat for a variety of reasons, ranging from concerns over climate change and sustainability to animal welfare and personal health habits or health benefits. That has led to a proliferation of products from companies like Impossible Foods and Beyond Meat across grocery stores and restaurants, while traditional meat companies like Tyson Foods, Purdue Farms, and Hormel are launching new entrants into the category. U.S. retail sales of plant-based foods grew 27% in 2020, bringing the total market to roughly $7 billion, according to data from the Plant-Based Food Foods Association and the Good Food Institute. The global market is forecast to grow to $450 billion by 2040. According to consulting firm Kearney, uh, which would represent roughly a quarter, uh, according to them, and that represents roughly a quarter of the broader $1.8 trillion meat market, $450 billion. Unbelievable. The market for plant-based products has largely been driven by faux milk and meat, which make up 35% and 20% respectively of the total sales in the category, according to GFI. Plant-based meat sales grew 45% to $1.4 billion in 2020, while plant-based milk sales grew 20%. didn't grow as fast, but it grew to $2.5 billion. Unbelievable. Ron, I would have never thought the plant-based meats or plant-based milk would be that much. I agree, yeah. One point four billion and two and a half billion. That's just and frankly, I've tried uh, plant-based milk once. I think I'm uh, not going to try it again. And the plant-based meats. Mm, not sure I'm going to go there. I may I may try one just to uh, say I've done it. The market for plant-based fish, on the other hand, has been slower to develop. While U.S. sales grew 23% in 2020, it only accounted for $12 million. So compared to these other categories, the plant-based fish, very small market share right now. That represents the $12 million, 0.1% in the entire U.S. seafood market compared to sales of plant-based meat, making up 1.4% of U.S. U.S. meat sales. Part of the problem, and this is from industry insiders, is that conventional seafood really has a health halo around it. It's seen as a very healthy food already, and doctors often tell patients to consume more of it. Several companies are looking to change 
things in an attempt to take a piece of the more than $15 billion U.S. seafood market. There were 83 companies. So they see an opportunity. You got 83 companies now globally producing alternative seafood products as of June 2021, according to GFI, with 65% of them focusing on plant-based products. In comparison, there were only 29 companies producing alternative seafood products in 2017. In 2020, more than $80 million was invested in alternative seafood companies, four times that amount invested in 2019. So the investments in this particular uh, vertical going up a lot, and they're seeing there may be the opportunity there. We'll see how it see how it uh, fares. See what else they've got to say. Blue Nalu, which is focused on cultured seafood. And I had to uh, keep reading and look this up. Cultured seafood, it's a fish produced directly from cells. They've raised $60 million in convertible note financing in January 2021. And it's a record deal for an alternative seafood company. So, Money's starting to go into the sector. I'm not sure what fish produced directly from sales really looks like or is going to taste like. And that's one of the other things the article cites is that the taste is really what's driving consumer adoption or, or driving consumers away from uh, moving into the plant-based products. But there you go. Fake seafood on the way. Um, apparently, Subway says their tuna is not fake, so it's probably not from this cell-based production. You've been listening to the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. We'll be right back after these commercials. It's Doc Thompson for Matthew 25 Ministries. Matthew 25 Ministries is one of the few charities I'll actually endorse because I know them. I've worked with them. And I know almost all of the money that you donate goes to help people. Go to m25m.org. m25m.org. The Daily Mojo with Brad Staggs. My suggestion was why not create another category so you have men, you have women, then you have transgender men and transgender women. And so, I mean, why not create their own unique category so we are comparing apples to apples and coconuts to coconuts? Because their whole entire shtick for the transgender community is, no, these are women. Despite the fact that they have XY chromosomes and, you know, a giant hog swinging between their legs, they are women. (laughs) And you can't say otherwise. Wow. Wow. Uh, Giant hog. hog. Never heard it quite described that way. That's great. I see you've seen Ron naked too. Uh, It's uh, weekdays, 8 Eastern, Mojo 5 0. After a long, hard night, I am exhausted. I need something that will stimulate me. That's why I start each day with Ron's sexual chocolate. It really gets me off to work. Find the flavor that stimulates you and gets you off to work at AmericanPrideRoasters.com. 
Hi, it's Doc Thompson for Matthew 25 Ministries. Matthew 25 Ministries is one of the few charities I'll actually endorse because I know them. I've worked with them, and I know almost all of the money that you donate goes to help people. Go to m25m.org, m25m.org. And welcome back to the Dr. Doug Ramsey Show. All right, here's another article, Ron, on the uh, plant-based products. And this is actually uh, talking about Panda Express. Panda Express is now entering the plant-based market. Panda announced that uh, its plan to team up with Beyond Meat. Uh, They are going to bring the Beyond the Orange, the original Orange Chicken to select locations nationwide. Beyond Meat unveiled its new plant-based chicken tenders a week prior to this launch. And the main ingredient, Ron, you may find this disturbing. I did when I uh, found this article. And I I like Panda Express, too. (laughs) Yeah. The main ingredient is going to be the fava bean. And the only thing I relate to the fava bean is Silence of the Lambs. And... uh, I don't know Hannibal Lecter, fava beans, all that. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm not sure it's going to go over well if anybody's seen the movie. But anyway, the uh, Panda Express promotion. It's a, um, they uh, they stated that the original orange chicken has significant brand equity, and it's a staple of the American Chinese comfort food. But is ready to take the next step by offering the plant based alternatives. And with food companies riding a wave of health-conscious alternatives, Panda is clearly hoping to lure younger first-time diners as well. Creating a fresh new take on a classic favorite is a great and accessible way to introduce plant-based proteins or a guest and perhaps even draw a new audience for Panda, the company said this week. Other companies are on the hunt to get a stake in this rapidly growing plant-based protein and vegan market where growth has skyrocketed 227% compared to a year ago, according to data intelligence platform TasteWise. In the last couple of years, chains like KFC, Burger King, Starbucks, Dunkin' Donuts, and Shake Shack have all carved out space on their menus for alternative meat options, though the latter has downplayed the prospect of joining forces with Beyond Meat. In June, tech entrepreneur Alexis Ohanian's Fund 776 led a $50 million Series B round for the plant-based chicken company Simulate. Founder and CEO Ben Pasternak told Yahoo Finance he intends to use the latest funding round to hire top talent, including food, material, and flavor scientists and engineers ahead of scaling beyond direct-to-consumer marketing. According to the company, the product captures the feel of tear-apart chicken tenders thanks to technology that creates fibers to mimic the texture of real chicken. I don't know. That just doesn't sound appetizing to me. So they've got technology. They create the fibers. It mimics the texture of chicken, but it's not chicken. Mm, not, Not real sure about that. Pinky Cole, the owner of Slutty Vegan in Atlanta, has been in the vegan market for the past seven years, but believes that plant-based meat demand will explode within the next 10 years, she said in a recent interview. 
Shake Shack recently tapped Cole to create a vegan menu item for its now-serving campaign, which aims to highlight local chefs across the nation to feature limited-time menu innovations. It just goes to show you that this vegan option is what people are asking for, so you have to fulfill the demand, Cole said in May, adding that it shows you that people are getting more conscious about what they eat. I haven't seen that demand, but maybe it's out there. All right, let's switch gears. Let's talk about Bitcoin mining. We talked a little bit about the Chinese Bitcoin mining firms may be forced out of China or forced to shut down. And just a week later, I mean, this is uh, hot off the headlines. How the U.S. became the world's new Bitcoin mining hub didn't take long. Let's hit some of the highlights. Before China decided to kick out all of its Bitcoin miners, they were already leaving in droves. And new data from Cambridge University shows they were likely headed to the United States. The U.S. has fast become the new darling of the Bitcoin mining world. It is the second biggest mining destination on the planet accounting for nearly 17% of all the world's Bitcoin miners as of April 2021. That's a 151% increase from September 2020. For the last 18 months, we've had a serious growth of mining infrastructures in the U.S., said Darren Feinstein, founder of BlockCap and Core Scientific. We've noticed a massive uptick in mining operations looking to relocate to North America, mostly in the U.S., this data set doesn't include the mass mining exodus of out of China, which led to half the world's miners dropping offline. And experts tell CNBC that the U.S. share of the mining market is likely even bigger than the numbers indicate. According to the newly released Cambridge data, just before the Chinese mining ban began, the country accounted for 46% of the world's total hash rate. An industry term used to describe the collective computing power of the Bitcoin network. That's a sharp decline from 75.5% in September 2019, and the percentage is likely much lower given the exodus underway now. 500,000 formerly Chinese miner rigs are looking for homes in the U.S., said Marathon Digital's Fred Thiel. If they are deployed, it would mean North America would have closer to 40% of the global hash rate by the end of 2022. America's rising dominance is a simple case of luck meeting preparation. The U.S. has quickly and quietly been building up its hosting capacity. Before Bitcoin miners actually started coming to America, companies across the country made a gamble that eventually, if adequate infrastructure were in place, they would set up shop in the U.S. That gamble appears to be paying off. When Bitcoin crashed in late 2017 and the wider market entered a multi-year crypto winter, there wasn't much demand for big Bitcoin farms. U.S. mining operators saw their opening and jumped at the chance to deploy cheap money to build up the mining ecosystem in the States. The large publicly traded miners were able to raise capital to go make big purchases, said Mike Collier, CEO of digital currency company Foundry, which helped drive over $300 million of mining equipment into North America. 
Companies like North American Crypto Mining Operator Core Scientific kept building out hosting space all through the crypto winters, so they had the capacity to plug in new gear, according to Collier. A majority of the new equipment manufactured from May 2020 through December 2020 was shipped to the U.S. and Canada, he said. What's interesting, Ron, um, I've been actually working with uh, a couple of folks on this Bitcoin mining infrastructure, and what we're in discussions on is looking at flare gas uh, from particularly out of West Texas and other um, oil and gas producing regions where they don't have a profitable or economic outlet for their natural gas because you get associated gas when you're doing oil production. And that associated gas, is if it isn't enough um, to generate cash flow uh sufficient to build a pipeline to get it to market because you got to transport natural gas and pipelines, obviously, then they just flare it. Well, if you could convert that flared gas and put it to and repurpose it instead of just getting burned up and repurpose it to generators uh, to operate Bitcoin mining operations, one, it can be a very inexpensive source of energy for the mining operators. Uh, and two, it meets this demand. So as these people relocate, they can plug right into uh, perhaps even these operating companies' um, uh, oil and gas networks and tie right into it and set up their Bitcoin mining farms. It's a pretty fascinating area and the the miners are running these algorithms, you know, twenty four seven, trying to mine that next Bitcoin. And the margins, it turns out, there's there's so many people doing it. Uh, you've really got to find a cheap energy source, and this cheap energy source, natural gas, um, certainly can do that because you can use that to fuel the generators. Generators produce the electricity. The electricity runs all the computer banks that are running the algorithms in trying to find the next Bitcoin. And they talk about the margins. I'm not sure it was in here, but it's it's relatively thin. So the big driver is going to be your, your input cost. And the biggest variable in the input cost, because think about it, you got, you got the computer equipment, that's a fixed cost. You buy it, you set it up, and you need your building. You're going to store it all in and run everything out of, but then the one variable cost is that that electric supply source. Are you tapping into uh, a natural gas-created um, energy? Are you tapping into solar? Are you tapping into wind? Are you tapping into hydro? And a number of these Chinese operators were set up next to hydroelectric dams. So the water was actually... Uh, work in the generators and the generators created the electricity. Well, we don't have a lot of hydroelectric in the U.S., but we certainly have got natural gas, we got the wind, and we got the solar. So it's going to be interesting how it goes. And in fact, Ron, you might be able to turn that uh, degree you're working on uh, and become a, uh, a Bitcoin uh, miner. Yeah, I'd love that. And, you know, it doesn't take a lot to get started uh, talking to one gentleman in these discussions, and he started off with two computers. 
now he's got you know got thousands of them so um and man you got so much computer equipment running the uh, mojo <laughs> I, I platform right. yeah you could be mining in your spare time with the same equipment probably all right experts say use your uh, airline points and miles quickly here's why uh, if you're one of the millions of Americans who canceled a flight in 2020 and received a voucher for a future trip in its place, you probably already know that those vouchers have expiration dates. Well, that goes without saying. You gotta uh, you gotta use them or you lose them. But on miles, it turns out, and it's happened in the past, that the airlines will revalue your miles. And when they revalue them, they don't go up in value. They've gone down in value in the past, and they reset all the thresholds. Well, you know, whereas it might have taken fifteen or 20,000 miles for a domestic flight, they may revalue it. And this, um, this article talks about the anticipation while the airlines get back on their feet, the anticipation that these miles are going to get devalued and they'll set, the, set higher thresholds. So now it may take... 25,000 or 30,000 miles to get a uh, domestic round trip um, seat using miles as opposed to using cash. So uh, expect to see some post-pandemic shakeup uh, in the reward point systems. Uh, Southwest, for example, they changed the number of points it takes to earn a free ticket in April. And uh, as more and more people take to the friendly skies, uh, analysts say that additional changes are on the way. Uh, for the last few years, the airlines have been moving the goalposts of how many miles it takes for travelers to redeem their rewards. First, they stopped tying points to the number of miles passengers traveled, instead basing them on the amount passengers paid for airfare. And then they started requiring more points to take a free flight. So keep an eye on your uh, your miles, Ron. I've got a whole bunch that I was hoping to use for international travel. That's what I typically save them up for and just uh, go for the the business class. It's a beating the right coach if you're flying overseas. Oh, yeah. Uh, that That's just a tough off. You're doing an eight-hour eight, eight hour flight or longer and you're in coach. It's, uh, it's tough on the body. So I would always just bank miles and, and use them for uh, uh, business class on those trips. But – haven't had a need to travel internationally in the last two years and really uh, wouldn't have been able to anyway. All right, let's talk about an activist investor. Uh, and She collaborates with a company to boost profits and improve working conditions for women. The company, Asbury Automotive Group, Inc., ABG. They're an automotive retailer in the U.S. Apparently... They've got a market cap of $3.5 billion. So they are a pretty large organization. And as of year-end 2020, December 31, 2020, company owned and operated 112 new vehicle franchises representing 31 brands of automobiles at 91 dealership locations and 25 collision centers in the U.S., the investor, the activist investor, is Impactive Capital. They own 5.02% of this um, auto company, 
and their average cost. So that three and a half billion dollar market cap, that's at a hundred a uh, per share trading price of one hundred eighty four dollars and seventeen cents when it got measured. The average cost per share that Impactive Capital um, has invested in their five percent ownership is at one hundred and five dollars and thirty four cents. So the stock is moved up from their uh, average investment price, uh, which is good for their investment, obviously. And what have they done? Impactive Capital is an activist hedge fund founded in 2018 by Lauren Taylor Wolf and Christian Alejandro Osmar, both formerly of Blue Harbor. In just three years, they have made quite a name for themselves as ESG-oriented activists. And ESG, we've talked about it on the show before, but ESG, as a reminder, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. Impactive will use all the traditional operational, financial, and strategic tools that activists use, but will also implement ESG change that they believe is material to the business and drives profitability to the company and shareholder value. So what's happening? They own that 5% stake, and they're having discussions with the company. This investment here is Impactive's first, one of their first positions when they started the fund. They bought it in the 60s, and then we're talking about $60 per share. So they bought it when it was in the $60 range and kept adding to it, and they got up to that average of $105 per share um, invested. The company is an attractive recurring revenue razor blade model uh, with the sale of new and used cars being the razor and the parts and services business being the blade. That's an interesting analogy. So let's go over that one more time. So new and used cars is the razor and the parts and services are the blade of this razor blade model. The company uh, had Asbury Automotive implement ClickLane to give it an online e-commerce presence and capability, and it can allow it to compete with Carvana, further driving growth. One of the other things they've done, uh, there are opportunities for strategic acquisitions to grow revenue and earnings, and the company has shown that they can be disciplined acquirers of the right businesses. For example, in December 2019, the company entered into an agreement to acquire the Park Place business for approximately $1 billion, negotiating a very favorable $10 million termina- termination right, which they ended up paying when they terminated the agreement. Six months later, the company re-engaged with Park Place under more favorable pricing and more flexible financing terms for a new purchase price of $889.9 million. Third, the company's parts and services business has been under-earning because of pandemic-related slowdowns and labor shortages preventing it from operating anywhere near capacity. So there's a lot of room there for growth. Impactive has an impressive track record of providing solutions for operational problems like this that also further ESG considerations. For example... To remedy the problem of labor shortages, the company has been reaching out to female-led companies to bring more women mechanics into the collision centers. To accomplish this, they have implemented two shifts per day to better accommodate 
for childcare, built separate locker rooms and bathrooms for women and men, and became the first publicly listed auto dealer to offer maternity leave. While 98% of mechanics are male, ABG can solve their labor problem by hiring a significant portion of the other 2% and hopefully grow the percentage of female mechanics in the workplace. If the ratio went from 98.2 to 90.10, it would add a huge amount of labor to the mechanic pool. These changes to its labor force could help accelerate growth in its most profitable business segment, parts and labor, from the mid to high single digits where it is today to double digits. This is a perfect example of Impactive's investment thesis using ESG to drive value creation and profitability. All right, there you go. Let's talk about education, Ron. You're still getting educated. Millionaires are always learning. Let's talk about student loans. I like how you lumped me in with those. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. This headline, and this is not a perspective we've addressed student debt uh, from in the past. Only 25% of those with student loans went to graduate school, but they owe around 50% of all student debt. So why is that? Well, the... uh, Let's talk about the general numbers. Americans collectively owe today more than $1.7 trillion in student debt. U.S. student debt has increased by more than 100% over the past 10 years, and the fastest growing category of student loans are those taken out by graduate students. Brookings estimates that while just 25% of student loan borrowers went to graduate school, these students hold about half of all outstanding student debt. The average amount of student debt for a person with a bachelor's degree is $28,950, but it is $66,300 for an MBA, $71,000 for a master's degree, and $145,500 for a law degree. Oh, and let's not forget the medical degree, $201,490. So, There's your exit balance for those degree categories and the amount of debt uh, uh, students have on average when they graduate. It is regularly argued that graduate students take on more loans because they can expect to earn more, which is often true. Workers with master's degrees earn $1,545 per week on average, and workers with a professional degree such as a JD or an MD earn $1,893 per week on average, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics and Estimates. However, those with just a bachelor's degree earn closer to $1,305 per week, and those with just a high school degree earn closer to $781 per week on average. Workers with advanced degrees also have significantly lower unemployment rates. So uh, there's a graph here. I can hit a couple highlights. Kind of interesting. So that median earnings for uh, a doctoral degree, $1,885. The unemployment rate in that category, though, is only 2.5%. For professional degrees, weekly earnings, $1,893, uh, slightly higher than the doctoral degree. 
Unemployment rate, only 3.1%. Master's degrees, $1,545 in earnings. Unemployment rate creeps up a little bit to 4.1%. Bachelor's degrees, at a lowest earning category, $1,305. Is uh, Unemployment rate is 5.5%. And then you get to uh, those with less... We'll jump all the way right to this, Ron. Those with less than a high school diploma. All right, this is why, kids, you need to go to school, go to college. If you have less than a high school diploma, which means you didn't graduate high school, your average weekly earnings, $619 a week. And here's the uh, double whammy. Your unemployment rate percent is 11.1%. So it's uh, basically 10% higher than anybody that's got a graduate degree. So make sure you don't do drugs and you go to school. That's the takeaway there, Ron. You've seen the uh, egg frying in the frying pan, right? This is your brain on drugs. Get out of the frying pan. Get into graduate school, kids. All right. Our last topic of the day, and this is a big one. How the wealthy use debt as a tool to screw the government and everybody else. Ron, I'm not sure you've ever heard of this uh, term before that was coined by a professor. Buy, borrow, and die. Apparently, this is a strategy of the wealthy. Let's see what we're talking about. ProPublica's investigation into billionaires' tax returns has more people paying attention to the strategies wealthy Americans use to avoid paying taxes. As it turns out, one of those tactics involves the advantageous use of debt. There's even a catchphrase for it, buy, borrow, die, that was the subject of a recent Wall Street Journal article. In both the ProPublica and Wall Street Journal articles, um, The wealthy opted to use debt as a strategy when many borrowers I encounter in my reporting are relying, and this is from the reporter's perspective, uh, are relying on loans because they have to. Uh, This reporter called Edward McCaffrey uh, and talked to him, and Edward McCaffrey is a professor at the University of Southern California School, School of Law who says he coined the phrase buy, borrow, and die decades ago to learn more about it. McCaffrey said he first started thinking about the idea a few years into his tax law teaching career when he noticed how certain tax doctrines could benefit the wealthy. For example, the realization requirement, which means you don't pay taxes on an asset until it produces cash. So that allows the wealthy to build up their assets tax-free. To most of us, it would seem that the problem with that method is that sooner or later you're going to have to sell, he said, but that's actually not the case. As long as someone is wealthy enough to live on a percentage of their assets, they never have to sell. So they have enough cash flow being thrown off of these assets to cover the debt costs to to maintain their asset portfolio. So there you go. He's talking about this strategy. Hey, go to the grave with a bunch of debt because – then you don't have to pay it off, Ron. It's not a bad idea. I hear that. Yeah, so uh, I've, I may work on that one. That's uh, that's a good one to file. There's a little bit more uh, detail to it, but everybody gets the uh, the gist of the uh, article there. 
Oh, one more thing. I thought that was our last one. Facebook refutes Biden's claim that it is killing people with vaccine vaccine misinformation. Zuckerberg came out and said they're not the ones uh, causing the uh, uh, problems uh, and encouraging people to not get vaccinated. Zuckerberg's going up against the uh, Biden administration who came out this week and is trying to blame Facebook and other social media platforms for this lack of enthusiasm for uh, those that have not been vaccinated yet and uh, are reluctant to uh, to do so. All right, coming up right after this show, it's at the mic with Keith, Keith Malinek. Make sure you stay tuned for that. Uh, Ron, great show today. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining and uh, coming on in yes, on sir. this great July weekend. You've been listening to Dr. Doug Ramsey's show. And remember, you can't make dough without Doug. See you next week. is the seditious, rabble-rousing, liberty-loving, home of fun, entertaining, and compelling talk. Mojo 5.0.